Open your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 6 again. We're still talking about worship. We're talking about uh, uh, the story, of course, of Jesus with the woman at the well and what Jesus says to her at the end of their discussion is that he's talking about worship and he said, it doesn't matter now whether you worship where you're worshiping, in Jerusalem or, in, uh, or, or on this mountain, because there's coming a time when the true worship is not in a place, but it's in the spirit. Because true worshipers, he said, must worship in spirit and in truth. That's verse 23 and 24 of John chapter 4. True worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so we've been looking at what true worship is. What does it mean that it's in spirit and in truth? And we've looked at the spirit part of it because Jesus says you must worship. There's no other way. So that means whatever else we've done was something other than true worship. It wasn't bad, but we've seen that in many cases it was praise. We sing songs of praise, and the Bible's full of commandments to praise Him. And so there's nothing wrong with what we've done, but what we're learning is that if we don't understand what true worship is, we'll never, uh, we'll never reach towards it. We'll never desire it. We'll never even know it when it comes. We'll just kind of mix it together with everything else. And God inhabits the praises of His people, and God, God wants us to be thankful, but the thing that satisfies the desire of His heart more than anything, and, the, and what changes us more than anything, is true worship. And we've been learning why, because Jesus said... In order to true, be true worship, we must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And we've seen there's two reasons that we've talked about why it must be in spirit. There may be others, but we've talked about two. First of all, because the next verse, verse 24, says God is a spirit. So in order to worship Him, you've got to be connected to Him in the realm that He exists in. And most of praise comes out of our soul, our emotions, and our, our mind, and there's nothing wrong with that, but that's not the realm God lives in. God is a spirit. Therefore, those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Now, for some of us, when we hear the word in spirit, we immediately think tongues. That's only a small aspect of it. It's much more than that. And then we saw that it, it, it had to be in spirit because, because God is spirit. We've talked about what Jesus talked about so much, about being one with Him. This fellowship with Him in the Greek word is koinonia, which means a sharing together of something, a connection together of something. And, and, and we saw that Jesus is teaching us, and the Bible teaches us, that when you came to Christ, God put, you were born of Him. God conceived in you His own nature, His own spirit. His, you were conceived of him, and that spirit man, that new spirit person in you, is born out of him, just like my body was born out of my parents, your body was born out of your parents, our children's bodies were born out of their parents, Anita and I. And so we, we've seen, but that's why Jesus said you must be born again. The first birth was the birth of your body, and the parents of that body are your parents. But in order to enter the kingdom of God, in order to enter his family, you have to be born a second time, and that birth has to come from above, and that is a birth of your spirit. That old man had to die, and God literally conceived through the Holy Spirit in you a brand new spirit that's born of him. That's the part of you that's his child. But that wasn't enough. We saw that God took his spirit and put him in you so that your spirit man a child of God, and God's own spirit are fused together so that literally God is connected to you and you are connected to God. And that's God's method of communication with us, 
That's why we're to be, the sons of God are led by the Spirit of God. But it's also the basis of worship because we share something together with Him as we share something together with one another. And worship is an enjoyment of and an experience of that Spirit-to-Spirit sharing together. And then we've been learning the other aspect of this. And and the other aspect of Spirit is that only the Spirit of God can reveal to us what He's like. And that true worship is a response to seeing who God is. And we're going to look at that more, again more carefully this morning. True worship is, because it comes from the Greek, the English word, worth-ship, W-O-R-T-H-ship, which, means, which literally means an expression of realizing the greater value of someone or something other than you. And I've used the example of standing before some great work of art, the original work of art, and just standing in awe of it, or maybe a sunset, something that just you just stand in awe of, like, wow. And part of that awe is you recognize inherently that it is something that's beyond you, something that's bigger than you, something that you cannot duplicate or or create yourself, and you just stand in awe of what it is. And I've shared with you quickly the story of our children years ago when we went to the National Art Museum in in Boston, and our, our teenagers stood in front of these works of art just, wow. And I'm looking at, wow, what would do that? Because they somehow inherently realized something special about that that was bigger than they were. Not physically, but there was something about it that was more than they could do, and they could may not understand it, but they could appreciate it. And that gives us a little taste of what this is. And then we saw, that, and, and therefore it takes the Holy Spirit to reveal to us who God is. And then we looked at the second part of this, is we must worship Him in truth. And we looked at the word truth in the Bible means in the New Testament, especially it means nothing hidden. It means everything open, just as it was in the Garden of Eden in the beginning. And the end of chapter 2, it says, and they were both naked and were not ashamed. There was nothing hidden before God. There was nothing to hide because everything was honest and open and perfectly in line with who he was and what he had intended. But of course, chapter 3 comes along and they sin. And we saw the first thing they did is hide, and the next thing they did is they made fig leaves. They made a covering for themselves. We've talked about the fact that we've done that too because we know now somehow inside inherently that we're not fully, perfectly where we ought to be. What we've done is we've created our own image we like to present to other people of this is what I'm like. We want other people to think of us this way, and we want to think of it this way ourselves. And so we saw that the reason we must worship Him in spirit and in truth is in order to worship Him, there has to be the same openness that they had back in the garden. And therefore, it begins its openness in two ways. We have to be open to see God for who He really is. We've talked about the fact that we were all trained in some way to have an image of what God was like. Religion does that. It teaches you what God is like. Our life experiences teach us things about what God is like. They're not accurate, but they teach us images of what God is like. Then we form our own image. And what we're realizing is to worship Him in truth means we've got to be willing to let go of what I think He is or what I want Him to be or what I was trained in Sunday school or what I was trained in, in religious school that I went to. Whatever I was trained in, whatever image I've been, has been put into me by man, I've got to be willing to let go of that and allow the Spirit of God introduce me to who He is. That's why that song those children sang was so precious. Lord, open the eyes of my heart that I may see who You really are that I may see who you really are, because it's only in seeing who he really is that I can respond to who he is. And then we saw the other side of that truth. Because I can't, because the other side of it, well, let's go to Isaiah 6. Let's look in it. 
because it's all in here. This, is, of course, is Isaiah's vision. God's preparing him to release him into his ministry. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. So that's what we're talking about, seeing him. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one cried to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door of heaven were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am done, undone, because I live, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand live coal. He took the, from the tongs from the altar, touched it with my mouth with it, and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. What we saw there is worship is a, is a response to seeing who God is, and then seeing who I am in comparison with that. That's like standing in front of, of a Van Gogh, or a, or a Michelangelo, or the, or the Mona Lisa, or some great work of art, and realizing not only how great that is, but my own inadequacy. Because I, I would imagine that if, if Leonardo da Vinci stood in front of one of the other great masters, he would admire their technique, but I don't know that he'd be overawed with it because he has the ability to do that and maybe greater. So he could appreciate it, but he wouldn't stand in awe of it other than he might appreciate it. But the reason we stand in awe of that is inherently we realize, I can't do that. My ability compared to his ability is like this. And so Isaiah is looking at God for who He is without any restraint. This was in a vision, and his immediate reaction is to see who He is in comparison with God. And we've realized that in order to do that with us, we need to be willing to face the truth, not just about who God is, but the truth about ourselves. And that's the more difficult truth sometimes to look at. And we learn that we're often afraid to face the truth about ourselves because we're afraid of what that's going to mean. I don't want to find out really what the inner motives of my heart are at some times. I'm not talking about whether you're born again. I'm talking about your soul, your inner motives sometimes. Why we do what we do and our ambitions sometimes. And sometimes, you know, it's, you just think you're just really, you know, you're almost right there walking right with Jesus. And some little thing happens and you react at somebody and you find out you're not where you thought. Am I the only person that's ever had that happen? Because if not, it just happened to you. <laughs> and we see who we really are. But what we realize, that's not bad. That's what now takes down the barrier to allow the revelation of God's love and grace to come in and flood our soul. And we looked at examples of that. So what we began to do last week is we've talked about that. Let's find out what the Bible says about God. What God says about Himself. What God says He wants us to know about Himself. And we looked at the very first thing God says about Himself. We looked back in Exodus when God reveals Himself to Moses. And Moses, he says to Moses, you're to go tell the people of Israel that I've heard their cry, that I've sent you to set them free. Go meet with the elders and tell them that. And Moses says, well, you know, that's nice. I'm talking to this bush that's talking to me. But they're going to ask me, who sent you? Who it was you talked to? Who shall I say? And in those days, in biblical days, your name was not just how, how you were called to supper. Your name reflected your character and your nature and your destiny and who you were. And so that's really what a, a, a Moses is asking. And God's answer, just tell him I am. Yeah, I am what? No, I am. I am. I am. I just am that I am. 
I am the self-existent one. Everything else came from me. And I came from no one. I've just always been. And we went back and we looked at scriptures in Isaiah where God reveals that to, through Isaiah's trying to remind the children of Israel who were very much like the church in the United States is today. You know, they worship God outwardly. We, everything looked good on the outside, but God was looking at the heart and their heart, he said, was far from me because they lost touch with who God is. And we ended our time last time by looking in the book of Job and we saw the man Job who was a good man and he was upright even in God's own estimation of him. But there were some things in him that was just not quite right. There was a little bit of pride, a little bit of self-righteousness and under the pressure of what he went through that began to spew out of his mouth. And he said some things about God that he would not have said otherwise, but they were in there. Out of the abundance of heart, the mouth speaks. And the God's way of bringing correction to Job was to simply remind Job who he was talking to. And he says, where were you when I measured out the foundations of the earth? Can you do what I do? And by the time he's finished with Job, Job is in awe again of who God is. And it's brought his heart back into the right order. And that's the first thing. That's what we looked at last time. That's the first thing. We're going to look at a second aspect of God. And we've already prayed and asked the Holy Spirit to help us because these words I'm going to read to you, you all know. And these words, but if these words don't come off the page and begin to become sown in our hearts and begin to grow in our hearts and begin to open our hearts to see Him, we're never going to come to this place of worship that He's calling to us because these words are going to be in our mind. So as I was meditating on this and studying on this and praying over this, I said, God, help me by the Spirit of God that these words for us can come off this page. And here's the words. We're looking at them now. They're in Isaiah. What's the first thing? What is it the angels say about him? Verse 3, Isaiah 6, 3. And one cried to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So the next thing we're going to look about God is that he is holy. That he is holy. Let's go to Exodus 15. And this is the story of Israel after they'd been delivered. Moses went back. God performed those ten miracles through him. And, 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 and Pharaoh kicks them out of Egypt, changes his mind about the time they get to the Red Sea, and, and sends 600 of his best chariots down to destroy them. So the Israelites are caught between the mightiest army on the earth at the time and the Red Sea. And they, of course, they What's in them begins to come out under pressure. God, why have you brought us out here to die? Moses, why have you brought us out here to die? They complain to the leader God gave them. And Moses, as a good leader, goes to God to find out what to do. God's, God, I love God's attitude there. He doesn't, understand, he, doesn't, he doesn't answer the problem. He says, why are you standing there talking to me? Um, God, I mean, here's the, the chariots and the Red Sea. What do you mean, why am I talking? Because God said, take them to the other side. See, when God tells you to do something, all your job is to do is to do it. And God's job is to provide the way. And if there's a Red Sea in the way, God has a way of parting it, removing it, or getting you over it, or through it somehow. That's His business. Our business is to do what He said to do. And this is a great example, because He's trying to get God to sympathize with Him. by saying, God, there's this problem. And God's saying, I don't see a problem, because I told you to go over there. 
And then God's answer is, here's, this is, this is good. This is a little sidetrack, but it's good. God says, well, what is it that's in your hand? It's just stick, God. It's just a stick. How can this solve the problem? Because it's not the stick that's going to solve the problem. It's what God's going to do with the stick. But Moses had to hold the stick out over the water. Some of you are looking at a Red Sea in your way of something God's told you to do. And you can't see how you can do it. You can't. Any more than Moses could have parted the Red Sea. And God's answer to you is, why are you waiting? I've already put in your hands what you need. You just need to recognize I put it there, and then you need to hold it out and begin to use it. And as he did that, God parted the sea. They got across. Over two million people got across on dry land. They are now on the other side. Pharaoh's army now is released by the cloud God had set them. Comes barreling through after them, and God just says, Oh, I'll stop breathing on this now. And the moment he did, they, Israel watched the Red Sea that was their obstacle. Ooh, this could preach. God saw, they saw the Red Sea that only a little while ago was their obstacle now begin to come back in and swallow up their enemy. Right in front of them. Is there any wonder the next thing they do is they have a church party and they begin to celebrate. And Moses sings this song. We're not going to go through it. I just want to show you one verse in here. This is the song of Moses, and we'll see this a little later on in a minute. Chapter Exodus 15, we're going to look at verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord? Now remember, they're not sitting in church. doing They've just seen this deliverance. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness? Glorious in holiness. We're going to go to the other end of the Bible now. Go to Revelation 4. We've just seen one scene in heaven in the vision that Isaiah had. Now we're going to see another vision into heaven. Because since heaven is where God is and we're trying, we want God to reveal to us who He is so that we can respond to Him and worship Him, these are the insights that He's given us. Revelation 4. After these things, which is the letter that Jesus letters that Jesus told John to write to the seven churches in Asia Minor. After these things, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice that I heard was like a trumpet speaking to me saying, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. And this is what we're asking God to do, to show us things. And immediately I was, look at this, in the Spirit. So we see here again, John, the Apostle John, could not see these things with his natural eyes. He could only see these things in the Spirit as the Spirit opened his eyes to see them. But God is more than willing to do that. We just need to ask Him for it and trust Him for it. Immediately I was in the Spirit and behold a throne set in heaven and one sat on that throne. Notice it's just one. And he who sat on thereon was like jasper and sardis stone in its appearance. Remember I've taught you that when somebody has a vision of something in the spirit realm, the spirit realm is so far beyond uh, this realm. This realm was created out of that realm. 
so far beyond it in beauty and majesty and purity and every other thing you can, every other itty, itty, I-T-Y you can put on the end. That our, our, our human being's vocabulary is terribly inadequate to describe it. But that's all we've got. So that when, when John sees these things, when Isaiah saw them, when Ezekiel saw what he saw, all their mind can do is take what they've seen and try to find words in their vocabulary that best describe it. It's like you having a dream and then trying to put it into words. When you try to put it, when you try to put it, it just loses its, it, 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 the vividness. It loses its intensity the moment you try to put it into words. And that's what was happening here. So, so the, don't get in your mind that the throne of God is a jasper stone, whatever that is. But whatever a jasper was to, to Isaiah, uh, to, uh, to J- John, is what he was, the only word he could pull out of his vocabulary and bring it forth to his mouth and say, this is the closest thing I can think of what it is. So just let this impression hit you. Don't try to figure out what jasper is or sardis or all of that. Just let this impression hit you. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their head. And from the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings. There again, I don't believe there's a thunderstorm in heaven. I believe these are radiance, the light of God. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. This is the, the lightnings of God. It's the light of God shooting out of Him. Ever have a... We used to do this as kids the bank that my stepfather represented as a lawyer would, would produce these as a, as a novelty, these sponges, they took all the air out of, remember those? Some of you are old enough to remember? They're just flat like this and hard, and my mother would bring them home, or he'd bring them home, and of course what we would do as kids, you know what we're going to do. <laughs> we took it over to the sink, filled the sink up with water, and we soaked this thing in water. And so now we get it to the point, we squeeze all the air out of it, we bring it out so it's dripping. Now you've got kids with a sponge dripping in water. You can just imagine what we did. And we did. It just kind of, it started with a little, oh, flick like this, which was an accident, you know, and some of the water spring, flew out of it, right? And it just hits my brothers or they hit, you know, it's like that, okay. Look at this. God is so, He is light. Though if he turns quickly, what shoots out of him? What he's full of. That's what I imagine this is. It's not lightning coming out of God. He's just, and light flies out of him. Wow. We're going to get to see it. And thunderings and voices, seven lamps of fire were burning around the throne, and there were seven spirits of God. God, There's only one spirit. These are seven aspects of the Spirit of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like a calf, the third had the face of a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes all around and within, and they did not rest day and night, saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now go to Revelation 15. 
Then I saw another sign in heaven, and marvelous seven angels, having seven la- the seven last plagues in them for the wrath of God before the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have victory over the beast and over the image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing in the sea of glass, having harps of God. And, the, and they sang, sing, listen to this, the song of Moses. The servant of God and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous of your works, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the saints, who, you sh- who shall not fear you, O Lord, who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy, and all the nations shall come and worship you, for your judgments have been manifest. For you alone are holy. Well, here's the way my mind works. All right. The Bible's established that God is holy. In order for that word to come off that page and move me somehow, I've got to know what that word means. So I began to study and began to meditate and pray. As I say, when I'm going to study something, I'm asking the Spirit of God to lead me and guide me. And you can do that too. He wants you to do that too. You're supposed to study too, not just me. So, Lord, what does it mean? I want to know something that moves me in here, not just as a concept that excites my mind, that moves me in here so that I want to go, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. So I looked the word up. I looked the word up in Hebrew. The word has two aspects to its meaning. The primary meaning is dedicated for a purpose. And we've looked at that before when we studied earlier on the difference between holy and profane. But and Israel's referred to being holy. And when we're taught to being holy, it, it does refer to being separated unto God and, and being dedicated to Him. But how can God be dedicated to something? What would God be dedicated to? It would have to be bigger than God. It would have to be before God, and there is nothing before God. So, so that aspect of the meaning holy can't mean God. So I looked, and there's another meaning of it. And it's pure. It's pure. So I looked up the word pure, and it means not contaminated by anything else. So then my mind says, all right, God is pure. Pure what? Because pure in and of itself just describes the lack of something else in it. So if you've got a swimming pool that's crystal clear, and there's, there's, no, well, there's no contaminants in it, it's pure. Or a glass of water. You want to drink water that's pure. So you may have it tested to find out that there are no contaminants in it. But if you find out there's no contaminants in it, then you know what you've got, listen carefully, is pure water. So just to find out that holy means pure, pure what? Because pure doesn't tell you the essence. Pure just tells you there's nothing else there besides what's there. But I want to know what's the there. So I began to meditate on that. And I began to realize there's some things that God says about himself that he just is. Now here's the distinction to have in your mind. There's things God says he does. There's things God says he has. But there's some things God is. There's a difference between is and have. Have is a quality that you have. And is, is your nature. For instance, with most of us, 
If somebody asks you, well, tell me who you are, you'll tell them what you do. Well, I'm a teacher, I'm a salesperson, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm a pastor. That's not who I am. Because I was, I was, before I ever became a lawyer, I was before I ever became a pastor. It's like saying to God, who are you? I am. So, in most of our minds, we, have, we don't differentiate between things we do and what we are. You are a child of God. That's your nature. What you do for the kingdom of God is not your nature, that's your assignment. So here's what we're talking about. There's some things in the Bible, it says that God is this. Not that He has a lot of it. There are qualities that He has, that He has much of, but there's some things the Bible says He is. And that's what He's pure in. Are you following me? I'm going to go through this slowly, because it's important. Let's look at one of them. Let's go... Let's go to 1 John chapter 4. Just go back to the left a little bit. I don't have to go far. I'll show you what I mean. Now, whatever God is, and this is another concept, so you know, I don't want to lose you in this, but this is important because this is to get a feel of it. Whatever God is, He is absolutely That's hard for us to really grasp because everything with us is relative. And I don't mean by that your mother-in-law. I'll give you an example. We've talked about this before. You know, one of the things that, that almost kept me out of the kingdom of God is because I would read in the Bible about what was sin and I wasn't committing them. Because I thought I was a pretty good person. And, and compared to some of you, maybe, compared to other people, I was. I didn't lie, you know, at least the way I thought lying meant what lying was. I didn't cheat on my wife. I didn't do things that the world considers sin, so I thought I was a good person. And compared to some of the people I worked with, I was. But it was when I read in Matthew where Jesus says be holy as I am holy that changed everything because I saw the standard wasn't everybody else the standard was God and then I realized how woefully short I fell give you another example those of you who are married know perfectly what I'm talking about you come home at night guys or women, whatever it is, you come home at night and your spouse has been there. Suppose, you know, your wife has been, I come home and, and you know, I walk in the door in the wintertime and this hasn't been happening lately, but it used to happen. And boy, it was, this is hot in here. And I go over and look at the thermostat. She's got it turned way up. And I'm saying, whew. And she's over there with blankets around her saying how cold she is. This is why they invented dual electric blankets. Hers is super high. Mine's warm till I get in and then it's off. Now, the temperature is the same. 
Because the thermostat still says 70 whatever. 70. But my experience of what that means and her experience are completely different based on what my body feels like compared to that temperature. All right? That's relative. And everything really in our life is like that. And to give you an example of a taste of what an absolute is, what years ago when we went to Florida, my father had a house down there. And we went down to visit him. Actually, we had the house. He, he gave it to us to, for a week. And we went down there, and, and we get up the first morning, and it's like 38 outside. So I go to turn the thermostat up, and nothing happens, really. I mean, I hear noise. And I called him up. I said, it's not working. He says, I said, the furnace isn't working. He says, not a furnace. It's a heat pump. I said, a what? He said, a heat pump. He said, what a heat pump does, a furnace creates heat. A heat pump takes the heat out of the air outside and brings it in. I said, Dad, it's 38 degrees out there. How can it bring heat in here? And then I learned something. At 38 degrees, there's still heat in that atmosphere. At zero, there's heat in that atmosphere, and we're freezing. At 32 below, there's heat in that air but we're freezing more. Why? Because we measure the temperature around us by the 98.6 that we are. Right? And when you compare 98.6 to zero, it's cold. (laughs) But scientists tell us that in order to get all the heat out, listen carefully, so that it's absolute cold, It's something over 600 degrees below zero. So until you get the 600 degrees or some number, it's not quite that, below zero, there's still heat in there. It's not absolutely cold yet, but to me, I mean, when you hit 32, it's cold. And zero, it's really cold. You following me? So absolute is a concept that we don't have by experience because everything in our lives is relative to some degree. And that's true when it comes to these qualities of God also. So when we see God is absolutely something, it's not that He has a lot. It's not that He has more than anybody else has ever lived. He is absolutely that. All right, so we're going to begin to go through these, and I'll show you that. 1 John chapter 4. Because we're talking about holiness is pure. 1 John 4 verse 8. And he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. He's not saying, for God loves more than anybody else. See, God cannot help but love, because that's what his nature is. It's also your nature now. God, his nature is love. And when I discovered that, that changed how I read my Bible. Because that means everything God does is ultimately motivated by love because God is love and cannot act outside of love because to act outside of love, He's got to act outside of Himself. And He cannot do that. show you another one. 1 John still. Verse uh, verse 16, still in chapter 4. 
And we have known and believed the love that God has for us, for God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God, and God in love. So the first quality that God is pure, and that's what we're talking about. Pure what? He's pure love. He's pure love. There's no contamination. There's no, there's no faltering. There's no moment while you're asleep where God blinks an eye and stops loving. There's no time, no matter what you do, where God stops loving. His love may require Him to deal with you differently. But whatever He does has to come from love because that's the essence of who God is and that love in Him is pure love. There's no other motive in Him because that love is totally unselfish. It never reacts to Himself. So even when God responds to Israel that they're stiff-necked and He gets angry at them, it's ultimately for their sake of what they're missing. What they're going to miss out on. God's pure in that. I don't know about you, but that's comforting to me. (laughs) There's no moment when He is not love. Pure love. No Nothing else in there. No other motive. Not the slightest hint. Not the slightest hint of something concerned about himself. God is pure love. Next one. Go to 1 John chapter 1. Verse 5, Chap- verses 1 through 4, saying that in prior times God spoke to us through messengers, prophets and angels and other messengers. But in these days God has spoken to us through His Son. What did He say? This is the message, verse 5. This is the message which we've heard from Him and declare to you that God is light. And in Him is no darkness at all. In other words, He is pure light. Well, we've learned that light is truth. They're very much interactive. Also, science tells us that light is a force. It's a powerful force. God is Light. God is truth. That becomes important to us when we're dealing with God's Word. And we have to decide for ourselves whether we can trust God's Word, whether God's Word is the truth or not. And here's where we struggle. And you've heard me teach this before. Our experience with ourselves and with each other 
is that truth is something that's outside of us that we measure what we say and what we do against that. Good example is somebody tells you, look, you know, you say, you know, I, I got to move. I need some help moving next Saturday. And some dear brother comes up to you and says, I'll come and I'll be there at 8 o'clock on Saturday to help you move. They've given you their word. Now, 8 o'clock on Saturday comes. You're going to decide whether they told you the truth. By what? By a, a, a heaven opening and an angel speaking? No, you're just going to measure what they said against some independent reality and if it lines up, they told you the truth. If it doesn't line up, they didn't tell you the truth. Now, there'll be other reasons why, but they didn't tell you the truth. And this is how we learn whether we can trust one another. And by the way, you may want to pull your toes in. This is how you learn whether you can trust yourself. Because you also measure your word against what you do. You may not think about it a lot, but inside that little computer you've got up there between your ears is noticing you've gotten pretty comfortable fudging things lately. So now when you go to take God at His word and you make promises to Him, you don't have a whole lot of confidence in your own word. It's hard to take confidence in somebody else's. But Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, gives us this answer. God's not a man. So what we know about God and about His Word, we've got to throw everything we've ever known and experienced about people keeping their words, including ours, out the window because it's completely irrelevant because God's not one of them. He's not a man that he should lie, nor the son of a man, a child of man, that he should repent or change his mind. Has he not said it, and shall he not bring it to pass? We're talking about truth. In fact, John 17, 17 tells us why. Jesus said, Sanctify them, talking to the Father, in thy truth, Thy word is truth. And we read that as thinking Jesus said, sanctify them their truth because you always tell the truth. But that would mean there's God and there's some independent reality out there that God's word is measured against. And then God's just like you and me. That means there's something outside of God that existed before Him. And we've learned that can't be. Where would that truth come from? John 17, 17 says... That truth is defined, truth is defined as whatever God says. So that's why God's word is truth. So God is light, God is truth. And in him there is no darkness at all. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above, with whom there is no variableness change or shadow of turning. When something turns in the light, it casts a shadow. And there's no shadow with God because He's absolute light. Whichever way He turns, it's light. Because He is light. He is pure light. 
and I don't understand this, I've tried to study it, but my very limited understanding is the laser beam with which we can touch the moon, which, which they can cut st steel, with which they can do surgery on the back of your eye, the, which they can open the, you know, take a cataract out and do that delicate surgery with it. That is nothing but light that's reorganized to remove the randomness of it. From my very limited understanding. Some of you may understand it much better than I do. But the power of pure light, God said, let there be light. And he said it was good. All right, let's look at another one. Holy means pure in these things. He's purely all of these things. You don't need to turn there. Revelation 16.5 says he's righteous. He's righteousness. He's absolute in his righteousness, which means he's always right. <laughs> Here's a good one. Let's go to Jude, Judges 6. Judges 6. You'll like this one. This is God's dealing with Gideon. Gideon was a teenage boy who was called to deliver his people from the oppression of the Midianites. And God does some miracles for him and to prove that God has really called him. Verse 22, Gideon perceived that he was an angel of the Lord that had dealt with him. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the Lord, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear, you shall not die. And Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is peace. Not the Lord brings peace. The Lord is peace. In Hebrew, it is Jehovah Shalom. Now the word Shalom is interesting. Notice he's not saying God's peaceful, because he is. He's not saying that God brings peace. God is peace. The word Shalom in Hebrew means more than peace the way you and I think of peace. We think of peace as the absence of conflict. We think of peace as whew, things have calmed down. Finally, the kids are at bed it's a, and things are now at peace. That's a small aspect of it. The word in Hebrew actually means everything in its right place, complete wholeness. And here's the aspects of it, some of them. It includes... Completeness in every area, contentment of our soul, health to our body, spirit, and soul. It means safety, and it means prosperity and blessing. So the word peace means wholeness or completeness. That's interesting because in the New Testament, the Greek word, I think it's irene, literally means as its root, something knitted back together and made whole again. So think about that. If things aren't whole in your life, you're not at peace, are you? If things are not where they're supposed to be, you're not at peace, are you? God's not just at peace. 
He is peace. He is peace, which means there's no peace apart from Him. There's no peace apart from being a peace of God. There's no peace because He is absolute completeness. He is absolute wholeness. He is absolute safety. He is absolute... Just think how the disciples felt just walking with Jesus. And see, that's why he would get upset at them sometimes because they're walking with the Prince of Peace and they get anxious. That gives me hope. And he's asleep. Well, it looks like the boat's going to sink because again he said, let's go to the other side. And he's asleep and they interpret that as you don't... Oh, this is good. You don't care about us. Why? Because you're not up here worrying with us. Do <laughs> you ever get frustrated God? He just doesn't get concerned about the things you're concerned about? Why? Because He is peace. Would you want Him to get nervous? Would you want God to say, Oh my goodness, I've never seen that before. What are we going to do? That happens. We know we're going down. We want him to be upset enough so we know he cares, but not so upset that he won't take care of it and doesn't know what to do. (laughs) He's so patient with us. And they woke him up, saying, don't you care about us? And Jesus' reaction was, why didn't you take care of it? And the other thing I saw one day is, why would he be nervous because the boats may go down? Because when you can walk on water, what does it matter whether you get there by boat or you walk? It's funny, but that was his perspective. He wasn't anxious when the report came back that it was too late, Jairus' daughter was dead. He didn't start wringing his hands and what are we going to do? The only thing he had to say was, look, don't fear. Only believe. It didn't stop him. Why? He was whole, complete. When his own townspeople decided they want to kill him and throw him off the bridge, throw him off the, the hill, he didn't get all anxious and upset. Why? Nothing could enter that perfect peace. That will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on the completeness and wholeness. Okay, we've got to move quickly along because I want to show you something. We may not get through this next part. So holiness means pure when it comes to God. And pure means absolute. Nothing else in there when it comes to these things. Love, peace. We could have put in there joy. Uh, 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 Righteousness, light, truth. Now, listen carefully. Holiness is not just a passive quality. So God's holiness is not just you look at God and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Holiness is a force. It is a spiritual force. And I'm going to show it to you. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 19. It's a force that destroys anything that is not consistent with it or doesn't line up with it. 
Exodus 19. This is where we began our study on worship. Exodus 19. I mean, and I've used this example before, but it, it, it works, so I'll use it again. When I got up this morning, it was before the sun was up. My house was dark. I went over into the living room, and I turned on the light switch. And what happened to the darkness? It went away. Why? Because the light, the power of the light was greater than the power of the darkness. In the Gospel of John, it says in chapter 1, if we kept on reading, um, we didn't get into the Gospel of John. John, John 1, it talks about it, it, he was the light of the world, and in him there was no darkness. And he said, and the darkness could not overcome the light. Why? Because it was a force that's greater than the darkness. And every time you turn on a light switch, if the light comes on, the darkness will go. Every time, 100% of the time, because light is always more powerful than darkness. Because light is a force and darkness is the absence of it. So something has to happen when light shows up. It's not passive is what I'm saying. You may think that that light bulb in your bedroom or your kitchen isn't doing anything. It's just on. But it's driving out the darkness all the time. They cannot coexist. Now, that's a 60-watt bulb or a 100-watt bulb or whatever these new bulbs are. God is absolute holiness. Absolute. Therefore, anything that is unholy, any impurity, when it comes in contact with the absolute holiness, one of them has to give way. And you know which one that's going to be. And not only anything that's unholy, anything that has it in it. With that background, what we're going here, look here, is the story we began this whole series on months ago of God telling Moses to bring his people out to the base of Mount Sinai because God wanted to come down on that mountain and meet with his people. And we've said that represents our Sunday time, our times together, whenever we come together. God wants to meet with us. But what happened here, because we're talking about this now in the aspect of God's holiness, is God had to tell Moses before that, he says, I want you to take three days and I want you, these people, to consecrate themselves. In other words, I want them to wash their clothes and it wasn't because they had odor. It was signifying getting the impurities out. He said, I want them to wash themselves. I want husbands and wives to physically stay away from each other. I want them to come to me. And there was no way, this is all symbolic, there was no way that all of that was going to get sin out of their lives. In the same token, God doesn't going to come down on the mountain in all His glory either. He's going to come down clothed in a cloud, clothed in certain things. When God appears several times, and some of them we're going to look at, He never, he never appears and reveals all of his, who He is. And we'll see that if, I don't think we'll get there this morning. But God comes down and He says, I want you to get, prepare yourself, clean yourself up, get rid of the physical impurities 
and then bring them out. And then he tells Moses to put a barrier around the bottom of the mountain. Verse 17, And Moses brought the people out of camp to meet with God. Oh, that's the part that gets me. And stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely covered in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked greatly. God's not fire. I believe this was that light, that glory of God. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder, Moses spoke and God answered him by voice. Notice that Moses had to speak first. And God answered him by voice. Then the Lord came down on Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people again that not break through and gaze at the Lord, and many of them perish. Because he's absolute holiness. And they're not. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come to the mountain, because you warned us, saying, Put boundaries around it. Verse 24, the Lord said him away, go down, and then come up, you and Aaron with you, and don't let the priests come and break through to come, lest they, I break out against them, which is my holiness or righteousness breaks out against them. So Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. Now, chapters 20, chapter 21, chapter 22, and chapter 23 is what God told him on the mountain. So we're going to go over to chapter 24. Verse 1. And he said to Moses, Come down, come to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, and seven of the elders, and worship from afar. So bring them up to the mountain, and you from the, not all the way to the top, but partly up the mountain, and worship me. And then when they did that, verse 9, Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seven of the elders, and they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, paved work of sapphire stone. It was like the very heavenly heavenlies in its clarity or purity. Verse 12, Then the Lord said to Moses, You come up to me on the mountain, and be here, and I will give you tablets of stone, and I will give you the tablets of stone and the law and the commandments, which I have written, that you may teach them. So he calls Moses up to the very top. And Moses rose with his assistant, and Moses went up on the mountain of God. He said to the elders, You wait here. And they waited there. Verse 15, And Moses went up into the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. And the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And the sight of the glory of God, the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went into the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. There now God gives him the instructions for building the tabernacle which we studied a little time ago. Let's go over now to chapter 33. God tells Moses now to go down from the mountain to be with the people of Israel that you brought out of the land of Egypt. And he says, I will send my angel before you to drive out the Canaanites. What's happened in the meantime is they, while Moses was on the mountain, they built the golden calf. And God's now angry. He says, I'm not going to go with you. Verse 3, lest I consume you on the way. So Moses goes down the mountain. And verse 7, Moses took his tent and moved it outside the camp, far from the camp, and he called it the tabernacle of the meeting. Now this is not the tabernacle that we studied before. This is, a, this is his, his own tent, which now becomes his meeting place with God until the tabernacle itself is built. So it was that whenever Moses went out, verse 8, to the tabernacle, that all the people rose and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses. 
verse 11. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man does to his friend. And he would return to camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, the young man who did not depart from the tabernacle. He sat outside. Look at this. Then Moses says to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. You've said, I know you by name, and have I found grace in your sight? Now this is important here. Now therefore I pray, if I found grace in your sight, show me your way. What you have here is nobody else can come into the presence of God. Moses is there, and God's still not revealed all of himself. So when he says, I'm talking to him face to face, it's, we're going to see in a few minutes, it's not literally face to face, it's, it's there together in presence. He said, but all right, if all the other people couldn't come, how come Moses can come? Because this is what God will do. Moses had learned to trust God and walk with him by faith. And when someone learns to walk with him by faith, God will attribute to him a righteousness. Isn't that what it says in Romans 4? Not this righteousness that Abraham had. God spoke to Abraham also. He said that righteousness was not just for him. I attribute it to him because he took me at my word and trusted in my word and my promise. Moses trusted. David was able to come into God's presence without putting all the robes on. Why? Because these were people that trusted in God's word and trusted in him to the point that God says, I will give you grace. That's why Jesus, he's talking about grace here. I found grace in your sight. Not that God just smiled at him. Grace so he could come into his presence and not be destroyed. But see, now Moses isn't content with that. Look at what he wants to know. He says, I want to see something. Oh Lord, we've got to move along. He says, show me your way that I may know you. That word way means manner of life. Show me what you're like. I want to know your personality. I want to know your mood, your ways. Psalm 103 says, Moses knew his ways. The children of Israel knew God's acts. They knew what God did for them. Moses got to know God's ways. And I've used the example before of ways that Anita and I after 46 years of marriage, if we're dancing somewhere, sometimes we've done it in our kitchen, is, is she perfectly flows with me. I don't step on her toes. She doesn't step on mine. Because if I start moving in a certain direction, she just senses my move. And she'll mow, she knows my ways. Those of you married very long, you know each other's ways. You know the look in her eyes. You know the tone of voice. You don't have to say any words because you know their ways. So he's saying, I want to know you that way. I want to know your ways. I want to know your ways. Oh, this gets good. We gotta, oh, Lord, please help us. That I may find grace in your sight and consider this nation as your people. And God's answer was, my presence will go with you. I will give you rest. And she goes on in verse 15. He says, well, if your presence doesn't go with us, then, then we're not gonna, I don't want to go because it's your presence that separates us as your people. And the Lord says in verse 17, I will do this thing as you've spoken because you found grace in my sight that I know you by name. And now Moses says, I'm going, to go for the, I'm going to go for the gold. You've shown me this much of you. Show me your glory. We'll talk about that later on because that's one of his aspects. I want to know your glory, your weightiness. I want to know the essence of who you are. I don't want the clouds. I don't want all the... I want to see you for who you are. And he said... I will make my oh, this is good. 
I will make my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, I will compassion whom I will be compassionate on. But you cannot see my face. No man can see it and live. Why? Because it is the expression of who he is. It is God in his absolute form. And he says, with all the grace I've given you to see my parts of me, you can't see my face and live. But here's what I'll do. I'll hide you in a rock. Cover you with my hand. And I'll pass in front of you. And notice he says, what you can see about me is my goodness. I'd never seen this until this morning. God is not only purely love, God is not only purely righteousness and purely truth and purely peace, God is pure goodness. Listen to this, God is not just good, He is pure goodness. Think about that, how could there be goodness that exists outside of God? Then there'd have to be some other God. So it can only be in Him, and since He's absolute in everything He is, and since He's holy, He has to be pure goodness. That runs right up against this image of Him that so, much of, uh, so many of us have built into us. Because if we knew how good He is, we would trust Him with our whole lives and everything we are and have. The reason we hold parts of us back with Him is we're not convinced of His people. Is of how good he is. But he's absolute goodness. Pure goodness. And God says, I want to show you that part. I want to show you my goodness. And he hid him in a rock. The cleft of the rock. Christ is the rock. The rock of ages. Cleft for me. Let me hide myself. Let me hide my dirty laundry. Let me hide my impure motives. Let me hide my struggles and my weaknesses. Let me hide those in the rock, in Christ, in the cross. And then, as Hebrews 10 tells us, I can come boldly into the presence of a holy God, clothed with robes of righteousness, Absolute holiness. But God says, you can't see the essence of my holiness and live. Do you think Moses was worshiping at that time? Do you think Moses was struggling with, I don't know what this holiness is. Moses was so in awe, but not just in awe, drawn to him. Drawn to him. Drawn to this light drawn to this power, drawn to this holiness, drawn to Him. Why? Because He is love. He is goodness. He is peace. He is all the... He is truth. Jesus said, the reason some people don't come to me is because the light of the truth will shine on them and their deeds will be shown and they don't want to see the deeds because they don't want to let go of them. But most of us, I want them shown because I want to let go of them 
So that draws me to the light. That draws me to the light. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Heaven and earth are filled with your glory. God is pure, absolute love. Pure, absolute truth. Pure, absolute righteousness. Pure, absolute peace. Pure, absolute goodness. Wow. Wow. No wonder the angels circle his throne. Considering it the highest honor that they could be there in his presence crying, holy, 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 pure, absolute, love, peace, righteousness, joy, goodness, worthy to be worshipped. Amen. Father, we see through your word and your spirit things that the Apostle Paul said, they're just hard to express. But our spirit can grasp them as you reveal them to us. They pass understanding with our mind, but our spirit has been given to us, and your spirit's been given to us to reveal these things so that we might love you and honor you worship you for who you are. We began our study this morning by asking you to take these words off the page and make them real in our hearts. Father, may the seeds that have been sown into us today be watered with your word as we study and by the power of your spirit breathe on that the reality of these may grow in us that we may grow to be true worshipers who worship you in spirit and in truth and satisfy the desire of your heart for such to worship you. May we be those people by your grace.